You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who's got an amazing organization in his post-military career, one that drew me to tell his story. And the more I dove into his story, the more excited I am for you guys all to hear it. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment. On normal reminders, please follow us on all the social media sites. You guys are lagging. We need more social media presence. We need your help. So follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Uh, this way you can help grow. The show will give you all the information there about guests and what we have coming up, so please stay tuned there on social media as well. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. This helps the algorithm, helps grow the show, and get more people uh, and eyeballs and ears on these wonderful stories that we tell each and every week. Of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button up at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. That'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations like the one you'll hear about today. Um, And it's our way of giving back, and it's your way of being able to help out military folks and and, uh, military organizations just from doing some Amazon shopping. Works as well from your smartphone. Redirect your rate to the app. So if you save all your credit card information, really user-friendly and really easy to do. So we appreciate you guys doing that each and every week. Again, hazardground.com. All right, this week's guest is a retired Army colonel, spent over 30 years in uniform. In fact, he signed up during the Vietnam era during the first all-volunteer uh, you know, after the draft, he was part of the first all-volunteer signups uh, right after or right toward the end of Vietnam. As I said, spent 30 years, uh, some of it in special operations as a pilot with the 160th SOAR, and then went on to spend a better part of his career. And what I am the best way I'll describe it is sort of diplomatic negotiations and uh, uh, with with the enemy and things of that nature. It's a, just a really complicated story that our guest will tell you more about here in a moment. But what I have found most interesting is. In his post career, he founded a a nonprofit called Terrace Search, which basically is an all volunteer, veteran volunteer organization that is working to recover missing in action folks from every conflict from around the world. It's just an amazing organization that I'm so drawn to. And he is PJ Dermer joining us here on the Hazard Ground. PJ, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Morning, Mark. Thanks for the time, and thanks for Hazard Ground for you guys for having us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, it, it, again, just amazing. Um, it's it's. You know, we, we see so much, you know, POW, MIA stuff, and, you know, we, we know we're always looking, and we 100% believe leave no one behind, and uh, it was, uh, it's just amazing to see that you guys are doing this. I remember when I deployed to Iraq the first time, uh, Matt Maupin uh, was was the the American, he was a special at the time, he was captured, uh, and, you know, they assumed he was killed, and, you know, he was MIA for four or five years, or six years, whatever it was, I think eventually then around 2000. 12 or 13, they finally found his remains somewhere in Iraq. It was Matthew Keith Maupin, and, and uh, yeah. they they had signs and posters of him everywhere, you know, uh, just letting us know if anybody's seen him and everything. And, again, he, he was captured, I think, in 04, but they didn't find his remains for another 10 years. And I always thought that that was just something that was always so God for the family. You know, you you, you know the hope is slim, but you hold out forever. Uh, and, and to finally give them the closure and everything that they needed so badly was was so important. 
Um, no more solace of, of loss for the family, but to circle it back to what you guys do, it's just, yeah. you know, I'm sure for the, for the remains that you find and the, and the MIA and the POWs that you find that, that, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what it, what it means to those families to do it. So it's just a, a wonderful organization. I'm so excited to hear about it. Good. I, we appreciate it. Yeah. It's something we can, uh, I personally, duh, we founded it. I founded <laughs> it, but, um, the, the, the folks that join us, we don't even have a lot of words to describe it because it's not one of those things that you can describe the, when you do find some, uh, find a fellow brother after all those years, you know, it's nice to put, to put action to words. I see the black flag. We all see the flags. We've seen the logo, like you said, lest we forget, don't never forget. But when you actually really are involved in the, in the real world mission, it's a, it's, it's a whole different world. And it's really quite, quite rewarding. And I need to have that after our careers, like we've all had and, with the military combat time, co- conflict time, hazardous time, doesn't matter. This is a great way to kind of wrap it up per se. No, absolutely. And just, a, a, I mean, a, an incredible way to give back. All right. Uh, we start at the beginning for you. As I mentioned, uh, you signed up as part of the first <clears throat> all-volunteer signups during Vietnam. So what was the reasoning, how and why? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a great story. <clears throat> um, I, I I wasn't given a choice. I was uh, – Having uh, teenage troubles, lest, uh, you know, lest, lest, you know, those that don't. Um, uh, I teach a lot today in the world, both in the uh, SOCOM community and other military communities. And we get a lot of uh, the younger generation, possibly even your generation, that said, yeah, 9-11 hit. I had to go. It was my calling. I got to go. I was an engineer. I was a doctor. I was a fireman. But 9-11, I've got to get downrange. Uh, And then we get one or two that said, well, I I, I went in because I had nowhere to go. And that's essentially my story. I was 17, uh, 16, 15, 16, going nowhere fast. 17 came around. Uh, I had been in uh, court a couple times. Let's just say that. Been in front of a judge a few times. And in those days, there was something uh, back in those days, there was something called judge re- or court order referrals. In other words, the judge would call your family and say, hey, we've seen this young buck PJ one too many times in front of us. You might want to consider getting him something to do. And one of the things we offer or recommend is the military is, is induction into the military. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the old got a letter in the mail, go to war, or go to jail kind of Jody Cole yeah, from back exactly. in the day was you, huh? Yeah. Because I was a juvenile, I was, I was, I was able to stay out of jail yeah. at the time. Thank God. Right. No, I've had guns in my face, face on the ground, handcuffs, you name it. Um, and we were involved in some other things, teenagers, the classic story I like to tell us I got on the school bus every morning and I got off the school bus at night, but I was never in school in between. So as that was starting to build to a heyday, uh, the court, the court and the judge and the lawyers and the counselors said, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Dermery, you know, I'm going to find something else for this guy to do because he's heading to nowhere fast. So I, I did enlist, but I enlisted with my father taking me down to the uh, to the station, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. I had been in military school as a younger, younger child. Uh, uh, my parents, my my stepfather had been in military school. So we'd done that for a few years. So it wasn't so uh, unknown to me. And at 17, my 17th birthday, my dad handed me a birthday card, put me in the car and we went down and I enlisted. Um, and it was 74. So unbeknownst to me, as I would find out later that you know, this is really the heyday of Vietnam that with, with everything's coming crashing down. If you could see a graph or, yeah. you know, PhD, you know, Vietnam is coming down to an end. The United States is trying to figure out how to get out of there. Kissinger Nixon days, which I knew nothing of. Um, and so we enlisted, uh, enlisted infantry. It was why $2,000 bonus. 
And other than that, I didn't know anything about it. Airborne Ranger was offered as a, as a possibility after empty school. And, you know, they, they said they would talk to me about that later. Um, never got there because I barely, barely got through the training. Um, and I enlisted. And of course, the first thing that hit me in the face, which pertains to bring coming up to terror search here 30 years later, which is fascinating. The first thing that hit me in the face was everybody was in Vietnam. So when I got the basic training, which is at Fort Knox, uh, Kentucky, uh, I'd say over half the platoon was with guys from Vietnam. They were trying to come back in to get something to do. They just didn't make it when they got out or didn't like it. They didn't like when they got out. So half was from Vietnam. And then the other half was from every dredge of the world. We had folks that couldn't speak English. We had folks that didn't have passports. We had folks that didn't even know where they were. <laughs> and now we're all together in Fort Knox, Kentucky, in a very, in the old cotton uniforms, really shabby looking black boots without any kind of, uh, insoles and nothing fancy like today. I mean, there's no Arc'teryx, there's no Under Armour. It was this was hardcore, off the shelf stuff. We didn't yeah. have jungle boots; we had black leather. So uh, those two things, you know, colliding with the Vietnam community and then coming in the army to so to get on to get straightened out was how it all started. And it, it didn't happen right away. It took a while. Um, and I think less than half of us graduated from basic training. I mean, it was a mess. We had to have people from other companies come into the platoon to march in the graduation day parade because not enough people passed basic training. Uh, and I can tell you the army in that day, I can't, not the army, but the army that I was exposed to primarily infantry and, and whatnot, it wasn't special operations was, was a mess. I mean, nobody, hardly anybody was in it for the military, hardly any, and no one had any drive like today. Well, you know, like I said, nine 11, I got to go serve. There was no drive. Everybody was in it for some personal reason and some story that they had to get away from back home. Uh, to wit, uh, we had one, one young man from Iowa, uh, big old boy, good looking guy. And he had PFC stripes on in the platoon. And when we were all finished checking in and getting our gear and getting to know each other, we said, Hey, how come you have a PFC stripe? How'd you get that? Cause we were all privates. He says, well, I had, uh, I have two years of college. We're like two years of college, get you PFC. And he said, yeah. So, you know, we called them all throughout basic training. We called him doc. So here's this one guy in our platoon who's got two years of college with a rocker and we call him doc. There you go. So imagine compared to who's in today where there are actual doctors and PhDs and master's graduates, you know, guys that have worked on wall street guys that have had careers and joined the military. It's quite the, it's quite the different time frame than when I joined. Oh yeah, it was yeah. Crazy. No, I mean, obviously it is. Was there any part of you going through basic training that thought, like, boy, Dad got me in a pickle, or I got myself in a pickle, like I'm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, kind of deal? Well, my, my, you know, of course, physically I was a wreck. I mean, like I said, we were involved with a lot of things as teenagers, so physically I was a wreck. You know, I'd never run more than five steps to the bathroom or away from guys that were chasing. Yeah, me. I was going to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, away from I, the cops, right? That was the farthest I had to yeah, run. <laughs> yeah, we were, yeah, we were in good shape. But my my issue was mostly attitude. You know, attitude. Seventeen year old high school dropout because I had to go to high school. I had to get the, I had to drop out, which was the middle of eleventh grade. So I didn't start my second semester eleventh grade. Uh, my father had to sign both to drop out and to get me in the army as a dropout. Of course, in today's military, they wouldn't take me. It's just fascinating, fascinating juxtaposition, but. So I'm a high school dropout. So my, my, my issue, like, like many others, was attitude. I just, I was waking up in the morning. I was going through the training. I thought it was cool when we got our first M16. Oh, by the way, A1 with no flash suppressor, just the three uh, prongs. There you uh, go. 
Okay. So, you know, I thought, oh, that was cool. It was neat. We're throwing grenades. We're, we're marching on, we're marching like crazy. We're walking through God knows what, but nobody, you know, I wasn't into it. It wasn't, I wasn't mentally there. I was just doing it because I said, well, let me get through this and I'll see what happens. I mean, these were days when we, they could, they could whoop on us. They could beat on us. The, the cooks would yell at us. The cooks would throw things at us. They would purposely make you go to the end of the line uh, in the morning and all you got was chip beef and toast. I mean, they would do that to you. They wouldn't let you go in early to get the full. So, you know, my, my stepfather, who's a, uh, who's a Vietnam vet told me about shit on a shingle, AKA chip beef. I can't do it till today. I, I can't do it. <laughs> he <laughs> loves it. Boy. He <laughs> loves it. He still yeah, loves it. Oh, I'm telling you. Yeah. If that's all you got, and, and actually, it's got beef in it. It's got real beef in it, not the crap that they hid. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I enjoy but, it. I, I, you know, listen, I've only had it for the you know past couple of years of life. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I, listen, it's not, a, it's not a bad meal. It'll certainly fill you up at breakfast. To say yeah, the least. and that's the key. We didn't eat anyway. We weren't allowed to eat. We had to put it in and get out. Um, but so, you know, I wasn't really there. And then I went to Infantry AIT in Fort uh, Polk in the day, and it was through the summer. Oh, come and on. they still. And they still had the Vietnam in the heyday of Vietnam. They had Vietnam Vietnamese village uh, set up, uh, sort of like we have NTC today out in California. And we've we've built these mock Iraqi Afghan villages. Yeah, yeah. They had the Vietnamese village in Polk. It was not part of the training when I went through, but they walked us through the vill with all the straw blats. And of course, there were a couple of guys that were whipping out lighters, you know, being funny. They were whipping out lighters, as is the great picture from Vietnam, putting the hamlet on fire. Um, but it was more just a fact of trudging through and, and, you know, because where else was I going to go? And, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't excelling. I wasn't a standout cadet. I was a good shot. Uh, I was a very good shot, but I wasn't all the other tasks that they did, you know, I was just doing it. So um, still it was true that we, we all were enamored by the guys talking about Nam, but this was also the first place that I heard about guys that didn't come back. There was a lot of guys in the platoons, but especially in AIT that, their, their brothers didn't come back. So that's where I first started to hear about that too. And I'm like, what do you mean? Didn't come back. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't register with me. And then uh, my first tour was Korea up in the, up in the, up in Korea. As a Did you think you were headed to Vietnam at any point? Almost. We, I was in Korea as a 17 and a half year old, then 18 year old. And Lord, I won't even go into those stories, but they're pretty rough. Uh, uh, the, the rough time in Korea was mainly off duty. On duty was on duty was crazy because there was a lot happening on the DMZ. I was very fortunate. I got to be in Seoul a lot. Um, but yes, when April 75 came around, Nam started the fall. Uh, word was passed uh, to our unit or to Korea. I don't have enough details as remembering as a PFC that, you know, we were going to send people from Korea to assist in whatever was happening in Vietnam. That's about as deep as I can remember. So, the, and the only way I actually can remember better is they started to give us new equipment. We, we, we went and drew equipment, not the junk we were wearing. We got cleaner, new rifles, uh, cleaner gear and all that. And then we didn't go. Uh, Nam fell so fast. Saigon fell so fast, as we know from the history, uh, that we didn't go. And that as a PFC in the infantry is, is all I remember about it. No one gave us any details. We got a little bit excited. Uh, the guys that were from Nam got very excited. Uh, and then it was over. And then we didn't. And they took everything back and we went on with the same old, the same old dregs, which was going on in Korea at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, the Army, if I may, the Army, mm-hmm. one of the, my, uh, my big recollections that folks don't know, you know, as we study history and lessons learned or we don't, is I watched 
in Korea, I watched the Army Infantry Corps, the Army that I was involved with. Again, I wasn't with SF. I wasn't with any special team. Implode on itself. And the Army was killing itself when I was mean? in Korea. It means that it was just incredible, incredibly high incidence of morale problems, discipline problems. Nobody wanted, folks didn't show up for work. <clears throat> Nobody, we never saw officers when I was, never. And when we did, we didn't want to be around them. Um, NCOs were the key of my life. NCOs saved my life. Ultimately, they got me in school. They got me in a direction. They got me get, get, you know, playing sports and whatnot. So that our world was involved around a very small platoon level kind of stuff. We never, it just, the fighting that was going on, the, the incidents between races was, was, was big, white, black, Puerto Rican, you name it. Um, there was just you, a sense of no control. People carried knives in their uniforms. People hung out in groups in uniform on act on duty. Can you imagine? Yeah. And this was this was all nom. This was all post nom, crashing down to earth, which is in a way got the army to get itself up in the years that we now know. You know, your generation and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I don't want. I mean, without fast forwarding too much, how do you yeah. get on the officer slash pilot path? Yeah. I. I. Uh, uh, same things that got me in the army. I. I. I Deros came up, uh, ETS came up, and a bunch of SAR. I was in Fort Stewart, Georgia at the time. I went from Korea to Fort Stewart. They were just starting up the 24th Infantry. They were reactivating it. Most of the guys were either Rangers or folks coming from all over the world to beef up the 24th. It wasn't, it was, it was only one or two brigades. So I did the infantry drag there for a year after Korea. Uh, and the sergeant said, well, it's time to re-up. You got nowhere to go, nothing to do. We know you. You're not going anywhere. You're going to go right back to what you did if you don't sign, you know, sign up. In other words, you end up being what you were before you came in the army. I said, yeah, maybe, but I don't want to stay in the army. I figured the army did a good job. I had gotten high school, not GED. I got a high school diploma. I started playing sports, uh, uh, team sport hockey. Um, uh, I was taking uh, one or two small college credits a night. I was, you know, I was a different guy. I'd grown up a little bit. I was. Helmet liner and boots, as they called me when I came in, helmet liner went all the way down the boots, and now I was 15 pounds more, 20 pounds more. Just knew I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be going through that anymore. And they cornered me hard. They tried to make me sign, literally physically make me sign the papers, if you can imagine, in those days. Um, I didn't. I got out, and then I realized I didn't have anything to do. Oops. I knew that was a path, I knew that was a path that right back to where I was. So I started working, got a job working construction, and then came around to the next year. Same thing. I said, shit, what do I do? I'm not smart enough to invent the pet rock. I can't paint. I don't do whatever. So I thought I'd apply for college, which I never thought I'd ever be going to college. I applied for college, and uh, the only one that accepted me was University of Montana. Uh, For reasons of applying there, I'm a Baltimore boy which is why I enlisted. And I said, I can't stay in Baltimore. I got to go as far away from here as possible. Cause I know those guys will come back out. You know, they're already knocking on my door saying, Hey, we heard you back. Um, and I went out to Montana. I went, I applied to schools all out throughout the West. My brother, uh, interestingly, had also applied and got accepted into Montana as a forester and Montana for reasons I don't know today, accepted me. It's the only school that did. I, no idea why I should have kissed the old lady. It said it. I think part of it's because I had GI Bill. I had the war, I had the Vietnam era GI Bill, which gave us a monthly check. Uh, it's a very cool thing. I, I give the service a lot of credit for the GI Bill since its inception until today. As you know, today families can have it. Uh, I had the GI Bill, <clears throat> so I said, you know what? I'll go to college. And me and my brother, I bought a car and 
he brought the dog and we drove out west of Montana. Now, neither one of us hadn't been there before. I had no idea where Montana was. And uh, once I got out to Montana and got settled, <clears throat> uh, I said, well, I got to make some bucks. So got a few jobs, bartending and whatnot. And I figured, what the heck? I'll walk over to ROTC. And I, and I walked over to ROTC and I said, nah, how does one get a few bucks while they're in school? And they said, well, your prior service, so we can make you an early commissioning. In other words, it's Rossi's normal four years freshman that I, I yeah. can start as I'm a, a product. I'm a product of the ROTC world. Cool. And so I got that $100 a month check. I said, I'll do it. And then in Rossi, I started doing real well. I said, Rossi and I got along very well. Uh, school was doing, doing very well in school. And so the Rossi came to me and said, okay, great. What do you, how do you want to enter the service? I said, who said I want to enter service? He said, ah, <laughs> Come on, Durham, you're going to enter, buddy. You want to, we want you as RA, regular Army. I said, great. I don't know if I want to do as a career, but I'll, I'll do some years and I'll get out. And they said, okay, fine. And they said, hey, have you ever thought about being an aviator? I'm like, no. Well, why would I do that? And they said, well, another way to make a few bucks. If your goal is to make a few bucks, get settled, then get out, aviation pays you extra. It was either aviation or, you know, airborne ranger, all that kind of stuff again. Um, I said, uh, okay. And uh, I knew I didn't want to go in the infantry because I saw what happened to the and the infantry corps work. Of course, don't forget, I got Nam sitting over me. The how that all that was. Right. Uh, so I took MI military intelligence. <clears throat> didn't really know what it was, and and I took the, AFS, the aviation test. And in those days, this was eighty two. Aviation wasn't a branch, so you couldn't come in the army to be aviation. You had to come in the army as a combat arms. Right. Uh, RA regular army select. So I had to be combat arms, and you could do an aviation secondary. So we wore. Just like the guys in Nam, we wore a basic uniform and then we had an aviation, I mean, uh, an aviation badge, but you weren't an aviator. Okay. I mean, again, I don't understand this. So I took a pass the AFSAB and you know what? I'll do five. That can't hurt. And then I'll get the hell out and do something else. Well, five turned into 30, but that's how I got into <laughs> back to the army. Small and miscalculation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. So the first thing hits the ground. Um, and we came in, and of course, the ironic thing is, is before I came in the Army, is I told the Army a little fib. I said, hey, I'm graduating in May of 82. Sign me up. You can take me. And I wasn't. I actually graduated in December. And the reason I did that is I wanted some space before I came in. I just wanted to get a deep breath thing and then go in the Army. Because, again, I wasn't so enamored by it. I was doing it as a career progression choice. And uh, I took a backpacking trip through the Middle East for three months through the through the, the toughest times the Middle East had seen up to that time. Now wow. we're we now know that the Middle East is is on fire a lot. We've all, a lot of us <laughs> have served in it. I've been all through it multiple tours, both in Iraq and in places hazardous duty tours. So we get it. But in the, it's not the only time. In the early '80s, it was on fire as well. Syria was fighting itself. Lebanon was a massive civil war. Lebanon and Israel and the Arab world army was were all fighting each other. Right. Jordan was a, a you know Bedouin kingdom, nothing there. So I I took a backpacking trip both through there and Northern Ireland. It was the political dislocation that and that intrigued me. It was like, what's with these guys? Can't they get it together? So I went and saw. And I did that before I came in the army as kind of a airing out tour. And ironically, when I did my uh, SF-86 to get my clearance, uh, the security world said mm, something's wrong here. And the operational world loved it. So the operational world. Uh, picked me up as a fail secondary early. Normally, you know, you don't do that in your eighth to your eighth or 10th year of service, <laughs> maybe a little late later. I never had a choice. I was nominated as a fail without me knowing it. They loved the operational trip that I did. The Intel world hated it. The Intel world refused to give me a clearance. 
Sir Ham is a new officer. <clears throat> I go to MIOBC and the commander calls me and says, hey, you're, is, we got an issue is you're not going to get a top secret clearance. If you don't get a top secret clearance, you can't be MI. And maybe your military career is in doubt. <clears throat> and I said to him, you know what? After everything I've been through, whatever you want to do, do it. I, I don't have any, I don't have any, what can I do to influence it? He said nothing, but he said, interestingly enough, we're not going to send you. I was supposed to go to Fort Devon Special Forces uh, uh, follow-on track. It's a track they had at the time up at Devon's, and that's what I was going to do, so MI Special Forces. Um, he said, interestingly enough, aviation doesn't require clearance. All they have is dials that go red, green, and black, or you know, black, whatever, and no one cares. So you know what? If you would don't mind going to flight school, maybe you, why don't you go to flight school, and we'll work out the rest of this. I'm like, okay. And bingo. Next thing I know, I'm on my way to flight school without having completed my MI track. And of course, where does the Army send me is to an MI position in Germany once I graduate from flight school. So that, that, that's what got me in the service. And that was a whole start. So even my past was sticking with me then uh, uh, up, up to the time of creation. MI. Um, and, you know, I failed to mention this at the beginning. You yeah. know, you do have multiple combat deployments under yeah. your belt, one of them being yeah. in Panama. Uh, which yeah. comes around in the late eighties. So, uh, you know, without fast forwarding too much, you, you yeah. obviously you learn to fly. I mean, you know, um, are you immediately inserted into special operations as far as flying is concerned or, no. you know, do you have some other positions first before you get there? Yeah. I, I spent five years in the cold war, which of course okay. today I've started just paying benefits for the consulting gigs, consultant <laughs> world. I spent five years in the cold war as a, as a, in a, in a division aviation unit. So I flew everything they had there. Uh, single engine. Uh, Blackhawks were just coming in at the time. And then when I, like I said, I came in the army, do my five years and get the heck out. I was married. I got married by that time. And my wife said to me, Hey, do you really want to get out? She liked it. She had, she had been in the service and gotten out as well. And I said, well, I kind of want to get out. I came in, do five years. I'll go on the guard reserve and we'll move on. She was like, well, maybe we should look at something else. And just at that moment, when she was saying that I got a call from uh, Washington, DC from aviation branch, um, uh, special management office, which is just being stood up that, Hey, would I like to assess for something? And they weren't on class lines. I said, assess for what? They said, well, we have these kind of, we have a couple of neat aviation units. We think you'd be well fitted for. <clears throat> and uh, I, I couldn't find anybody in the unit that had been, and only been one person in the unit uh, had been, he was in uh, Granada and it was with the task force. What we call the task force when sick did he said, yeah, I, I kind of I think I know what they're telling you about. I can't tell you a lot, but I think I know where they want to send you. The brigade commander called me in and said, uh, I, I, I've not been to where they want to send you. The only thing I'll tell you is that unit kills people. <clears throat> I'm like, sir, what, what aviation unit doesn't kill people? He goes, no, nah, this one's a little different. <clears throat> he said, go see. <clears throat> go see. If you don't like it, we'll go from there. So I ended up flying to Fort Campbell and also flew to one other place. But I'll just talk about Campbell. I flew to Fort Campbell. Uh, found out it was the 160th. Nobody knew anything about it. You, the front gate couldn't tell me where it was. The CQ and the, and the division headquarters couldn't tell me where it was. <laughs> you know, we're, we're up in a bunker on top way back yonder. I just went there a couple weeks ago for the 40th reunion. And it's this bunker in the middle of nowhere with it's an old ammo bunker. I'm like, great. And I show up there. It's the weekend. The CQ goes, what do you want? Okay. Okay. I guess this is artsy, but, uh, it was the 160th, and, and we assessed. It was only three of us in that time. Very informal gig. We ran around the building. We drove to the swimming pool together, and we all hopped in the pool. Uh, you know, we 
we had like makeup classrooms in, in people's houses and out in parking lots. Nothing like it is today. The formal world is today. And um, my one of my assessment partner was Mike Durant. As you oh, really? Know. Yeah, my, Mike, Mike, Mike a former specific. guest on the show. Yeah, Mike, you know, from Somalia fame, Mike yes. and I were assessment part. Yeah. So three of us assessed, Mike and I got in. The third guy was a Chinook guy and he didn't make it. Um, and then uh, we went in from there. They, But they wanted me to be in the intel world first. They wanted an aviator. They wanted a, 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 a combat arms aviator, one that had been in the combat arms unit, to go in the intel shop because they were bringing in a ground intel guy for the first time. Uh, there, there are other intel guys flew too much and they wanted someone that would stay on the ground and do intel and then i could be the aviator that understood aviation sure and that's and that's what they brought me you're, and you're the translator like, essentially yeah <laughs> and then i was going to go down to the line unit and fly and I, and I flew little birds so i picked up little birds to be my supporting units and and and, and, and of course can't say enough about it. a lot of busy time not busy like like we were in the iraq day but we were just in, in building things we were learning at those days and getting time downrange. What was your role in Panama? Panama, I was the primary intel planner for the unit. Okay. So I initially ended up getting the getting the unit to war, literally. So no actual it. flying, though. Oh, I did. Okay. I ended up, and after the start of the war, after the start of the war, they detached a whole bunch of us to go up north with one of the other units, uh, a couple of us aviators and an aviation detachment. And I went up north. They had a shortage of seats, and I got the seat uh, for that to fly to do that for a bit. Uh, yeah. But I was, uh, uh, in those days we couldn't fill the seats, which was really strange if you think about it, but I, I got in, I got in flying up there, but nothing of the intense value like the unit would see years later. No, sure. Yeah. But I mean, again, and you know, just cause only lasted what a, a little over couple a month, weeks. right? Yeah. It was like five yeah, weeks. A couple weeks for us. Yeah. We were right out of there. We actually got, uh, I was, uh, uh, since I was the primary plan Intel planner for that, I actually got no notice to, uh, I was on the first plane into Manila when uh, Nick Rowe got killed. Oh, really? So, yeah, I got pulled out of Panama to actually get on that plane to go out to the Philippines to do some assessments when Nick got killed. Interesting. Now it's starting to make sense about all of your yeah. sort of diplomatic stuff with the, with the intel yeah. background that you have yeah. uh, in all of this. And, and again, without it, it's it's hard. Listen, you know, thirty years PJ is really tough to cover in a yeah, short it. amount of time. I don't want to fast, but anything significant from Panama. Panama between Panama and nine eleven is it more Cold War stuff that you're in? More, yeah, I mean, we're, when, we're at that start, time. This not Cold started. War, but we're in the precursor of. Uh, uh, we got into the drug war. We got into the drug fight. Sure. We got into we got into what I would call the uh, um, um, uh, looking for Elvis kind of things. Um, we actually even had T-shirts made. Actually, one of the makers of the T-shirts, the generator of one of the T-shirts, looking for Elvis, was a guy named Cliff Walcott. Yep. Also, and Black Hawk Down. Yeah, you know Cliff, unfortunately, gave yeah, his life in yep. Mogadishu. Um, uh, so we got we did some looking for bad guys around the world kind of things. Uh, and we were also figuring out things. There was we weren't quite to the sophisticated level of today. We were we were learning and figuring out how to do things while at the same time doing real world missions. So I got some flying time down in Central America as well. I mean, how much of during this time frame are you sort of <laughs> honing these your MI skills as opposed to your pilot skills. I mean, is it 50, 50? Are you, are you more focused on flying? Are you more yeah. working yeah. in the MI field? <clears throat> I know I, I didn't want to be in the MI field. I mean, I was, after they refused to give me a security clearance and basic training, I said, I'm getting out of this mess. Uh, but the army kept reinserting me back so that, you know, they make me a, an, an Intel officer in the, in the brigade in uh, Germany battalion. And then 
the 160th recruits me specifically because I'm aviation Intel. I mean, that was the draw is having both. Right. right? Um, so I get put back into it there to me, the Intel's not the hearts is hard. Uh, but you know, the flying at that days was tactless where I wanted to be. As I've grown up years later, the Intel stuff is almost twice as hard than the tactical. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I kept juxtaposing, but then becoming a fail later, the Intel world also drives into the fail world. You, you know, I don't, do, do you ever stop to think, I mean, you what, you're 10, 12, a dozen years into your career now, you know, by the time, you know, we're, we're, we're late nineties timeframe and you've done all this stuff. You didn't graduate freaking high school. And right. now you're, you're a guy who's, you know, doing high level intelligence operations for the military <clears throat> in some of the most remote places in the world. Um, did you ever stop and pause and think, how the hell did I end up here? No, uh, <laughs> no, but I did have someone bring it to my face directly when they started, <laughs> when they started calling me Captain Question. <laughs> Captain what do you explain? Uh, I always ask questions. Oh, okay. Ask guys, you got to understand where I come from. Okay. You got to understand my, you know, my, my, you know, where I'm from, I, I, if I don't understand something, which is quite a lot, I'm not afraid. I'm not shy to ask for most people, as you know, We'll sit there and be quiet, right? They won't say anything. Anybody got any questions and nobody raises a hand. I've got questions. And then you put me in the special operations world, which is not yet mature. It doesn't have manuals or field manuals, TMs or any, any doctrine. Like I said, we ran around the bunker. So nothing is mature. I can see why what guys are doing, what the flight leads are doing and why we're plus or minus this and why we're only this. But, but I mean, what, what is it that's driving us to do this? And, you know, the, and the guy said, okay, it's enough already with the questions. I said, well, I can't be shy. I'm a high school dropout. I mean, I didn't get here by being shy. I wouldn't be here right now if I was shy. I mean, right. you don't right from what I came from to now is there's a long way. And I'm, and I'm curious. I want to know how it works. I want to know how everything works. And then I can help you input as to how we might go and how we might develop. So it, it didn't, it did mow a little bit, but I didn't stop to think then now. And when I was in the white house later, when I was working in the white house, when I was working senior things in Iraq, it did come, it did cross my mind. Was, oh my God, look where I am and how did I get here? Yeah, pr- pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so where are you uh, when 9-11 approaches? Uh, I was uh, standing in Janine in the West Bank. Um, I would, by this time, the fail, I'd become a fail. We were prepping for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And one of the more ironic things uh, about that, I will tell you, is the 101st Airborne and deployed from Fort Campbell in 1990. And the, and the 160 of the task force did not. Now, you got to understand heretofore, every time as we disappear in the middle of the night, the guys go, oh, whatever. And then we come back and no one knows the difference, except there's a couple more people in the gym or the PX. Well, this at Desert Shield Storm, the 101st deployed, and we did not. Right. And there was a lot of ego bashing. I mean, we were working 28 hours a day. Of course, we'll go when we did get eventually missions coming down. We did get preparation. I worked those um, for classified kind of things <clears throat> uh but then it, as you as you know that when we did deploy for the for the op for the for the uh desert storm the, the special operations did not have a major role i think it's fair enough to say we lost some guys by the way does you know that doesn't matter to found we lost guys in the in the run-up but we did not have a major role we went out west uh as folks know uh the big war was the ground war and oh by the way this is probably not known that much but general schwarzkopf told our leadership uh that the tail's not wagging the dog. And what he meant by that is uh, the Panama, which is a very neat study. You don't hear about it. Panama was, it was a special operations led SOCOM uh, uh, 18th Airborne Corps led mission. And it had ground forces conventional attached. Right. Unusual. Normally we get attached. 
So Schwarzkopf told our leadership in no uncertain terms, that's not happening. This is tanks, bullets, artillery. We'll, we'll lead the way. We'll call you when we need you. And, and that's the truth. So right at that moment, I got called uh, in between the actual deployment for Saudi. <clears throat> I had to leave to go be a fail, to become a fail. And the fail training is, is, the, is a university uh, language and in-country training. It's the most intensive, expensive training of its kind in the United States government. Um, and I became what was called a Hebrew fail, one of the first ones. I think I was like second. Hebrew fail, meaning I was supposed to concentrate with Israel uh, like that. So I started that last third career path uh, down the fail world. This is at year 15, 12, 15, that I got called to do that. Um, and I went to Georgetown. Uh, I went to Hebrew uh, all the time while calling up the unit. Hey, did you go yet? Did you go yet? Uh, and then, uh, of course, I couldn't go to in-country. The army couldn't get me in Israel, so they sent me to the Middle East and the UN, which was which worked out because the UN put me in all the Arab countries. And if you're going to work the Israel portfolio, being an Arab side is nothing but an education as well. It turned out to work out very well. Plus, I also got to live with UN like Russians and Chinese, and and you can imagine as a captain and the and the and the days down in the bar and the happy hours, and we're we're having to deal with Russian and Chinese and you name it. We were. We were pretty straightforward folks with those guys, I'll tell you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So nine eleven happens, um, and yeah. I, I mean, yeah. at this point, you're what? Almost 20, well on the 20, fail track, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like you're, tw- you're over twenty years in already. <clears throat> yeah, well on the fail track. So fail, as you know, once we we normally do embassy tours, mm-hmm. and I did my first tour in Israel. A lot of stories there, a lot, a lot of bad times. And then you normally go to senior staff. So you go joint staff, army staff, yep. combat and command staff. You go to whatnot. So you're at the senior now. You're now dealing at strategic levels with tactical know-how. Let's call it that. 9-11 happens. I was, in, uh, I was on the joint staff. And the joint staff, I had taken a trip over to Israel. I was a Middle East desk officer uh, for Levant countries, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, with some other stuff working in Libya. I happened to go to Israel. Uh, we were all gone. It was the end of year, get rid of the fiscal funds kind of thing. Hey, everyone on the road. So the entire staff was out. Yep. 9-11 happens. I get a call from my Israeli buddy. Hey, PJ, somebody crashed into the tower. Uh, you might want to get on the news. And uh, funny, here I am. I'm standing next to an Israeli tank who's about to shoot <clears throat> into uh, the, the Palestinian city of Jenin to hurt somebody for real. So I got, you know, a lot, and I happen to know that the unit commander of that Israeli tank group. Uh, I got a lot of time in the West Bank in my first tour in Gaza, you name it. Wow, this is juxtaposed. So I hustle back to Tel Aviv. I see on the news, we all know what's happening. Um, of course, we can't get home. Nobody can return back, as you know, because the airspace was closed. So we're talking, the, the, the J-5 was General Abizade. He was gone. Everybody's gone. So none of us can get back, uh, of course. And it was all hands get back. And and, and something I will share with the, with the listeners Um just in the anything you do with Israel is incredibly complicated and emotional uh, dynamic, right? Normally it's held at, you know, you know, but as, as attaches, we had a lot of, a lot of learnings there. Uh, and I, I must've gotten in my hotel room, a hundred calls throughout the day and night, all hours of the Israelis asking me, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm an, I'm an right. emotional wreck like everybody else. Right. But I, they, they were doing that. And then they brought me in on their planning. Israelis brought me into their inner sanctum for their planning to what they were going to do, send to get to the States to include, I could fly on their airplane if I wanted into the U S. So it's just a moment to share that when things are bad, who, who really shows up and who doesn't these, these yeah, guys. Keep well, not, not to turn this into a political thing or right. anything, but 
you know, the relationship with Israel, um, there are people who get it and people who don't. That's all I'll oh, say. Oh, God, yeah. It, like um, I said, as I said you, it's its own class. But uh, just, just to know from being at that level. We get back, and of course, folks will know, you know, at the level of the Pentagon, you're at strategic levels. And the only question in the Pentagon at the time was, what are we going to do, right? So everybody became an action officer for suggesting something to do. And I will, I feel sorry for all the trees that were felled across the country for us producing papers that God knows where they went, but everybody had an idea, you know, take Antarctica, smash, smash, you know, you name it. So as, as a foreign attache, like, you know, for, for doing this for all these years, could, did, did anything prep you for this moment? Like, was there anything relatable, even in the scope of just planning purposes that you had worked on prior to that? No, uh, not until we started getting into Iraq. Gotcha. Uh, we okay. weren't into Iraq yet. We were just do something. Then it started to narrow to Afghanistan, and then Iraq came in the picture. The one thing I will tell you that did help me out and about on the streets of the Middle East, on the streets of bad guy land, which I have a lot of time outside of combat units. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a lot of time without any kind of overhead, without any kind of QRF, without any kind of anything, just me running around bad guy land was my time being a, you know, uh, on the streets of, of a, as a teenager, the, the, the interactions you have with people, yeah. how to just, yeah, how to stay alive. They all were, they all mesh. Everything was there. So at that level, it was clear when you come up to this level, of course, no junction. Once we started planning, what are we going to do with Iraq? It came into being as well again when, and with the question of how do you influence somebody to do something? You know, in special operations, we landed, somebody got hurt, we did our things, we took off. In the infantry, we, we came in mass, somebody got hurt, we did our thing and took off. We, we, none of us had stayed. Panama, we didn't stay. Now we were going to stay someplace. And that would be the first time that all those would come together. The street smarts, the language, and, and, and my experiences would come together. So we, in the joint staff, we ended up cranking papers. Then I got asked to go to the vice president's staff. Uh, again, I was going to get out, Mark. Here, here we are again. I only came in five years. Special operations kept me in. I said, it's time to get out. I put in my paperwork. And of course, anybody with the Middle East background got stop lost. So they weren't letting us out of the service after 9-11. So here we go again. So here I'm getting closer and closer to the point where I just stay forever. Um, so no Middle East uh, fails like myself and others we experienced were, were, we were all stop lost. And then we began working the circuit and slowly, slowly we were sent. I was actually sent to Israel by the chairman to do lessons learned from the Israelis war on terror. Uh, and, and when I came back to the Pentagon to brief the chairman, the senior staff, uh, I told them there's not a lot of lessons there except two. one, you can't fight your way out of this, right. Unless you're Russia or China, meaning the meaning how mean you'd have to be to fight your way out of this kind of a war. I mean, just crush. Our system doesn't do that. Uh, two, uh, the big enemy is not terror. It's, it's higher than that. Uh, and of course the, uh, I got some, I got some pushback from very senior people when I said that. The, the well, elaborate was, on that for me. So, so the, you I've always been under the presumption, you know, like the war on terror itself will never end. As long as there are people right. in this world who have some sort of free will to right. do harm uh, and believe in an ideology that is, right. for lack of a better term, anti-West, let's just call it, right? It's not anti yeah. whatever. Just, yeah. you know, um, there's always going to be people that, that are going to have a radical notion of what to do. Uh, and yep. now being able to be radicalized on the Internet and everything else is going to continue right. that that going. So you're never going to end the war on terror. All you're going to do is mitigate the amount of consequence that is... Uh, allowed to happen so when you say you know it's a bigger thing like can you elaborate 
Yeah, sure. I said, because, uh, uh, you know, all my years in Israel and traveling through bad guy land up to this point, namely the Middle East, right, had showed me that how how mean and how cruel uh, uh, these these leaders could be in these other countries. Yet there's a, still this fire, yet incidents still happen, yet people still fight back. So, okay, the schwacking is okay, killing and all that, and I'm, and I'm all for it. I think the homeland is much safer today for how we've conducted since 9-11. I'm all for that, but there becomes a certain point in time in the ground where you got to do something else. If, if you really want this to, to end or you just want to mitigate it or you just accept it every year, you're going to have to go fly around the world and hurt a few people. Whichever one of those directions you want to take decides ultimately how you form your policy and your actions back home in D.C. There were those thinking, of course, in the emotional day of 9-11, the hell with it. We are going to, we are going to schwack and schwack and HVT until we have nothing else to do. And I and I told him at that time, uh, that's a tricky thing. That's not a very solid ground. I think 20 years later, we all see, hmm, wow, okay, maybe there is something else we have to do if we really want to put these guys to rest. Um, and the evidence is clear. We're, we are still very active around the world, and I'm, and I'm all for it. Um, but look at the number of countries that have gone under, that have gotten worse, have imploded, you name it, right? So at the strategic level, it's that dynamic. At the tactical level, screw it. Let's do what we got to do. But I put that on the table early on, and, and I had some pretty heavy feedback. What, senior guy, could you share some of the feedback? You don't have to say any names of who gave it to you. Just curious yeah. on what you were told. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, the feedback was mainly, well, really, well, then, and and it came almost somewhat when they asked me about my trip to Israel. They said, "What do the Israelis say?" Well, I said, "The Israelis call it whack-a-mole, mowing the grass. That's all they can do. They're they're killed. They kill without regard. Trust me, right? They fly all over the world and kill people. They're still fighting the same battle." So, you know, they've I, also been doing that for like, you know, 2000 years. Like, so right, it's right, part of their, well, right. like, that's, right. that's, that's the right. big thing I think people fail to understand. And, and like, you know, right. I, I learned it when I went to Iraq and I went to Afghanistan. Like you realize yeah. this is right. a 2000 year inbred culture. Like, right. you know, since we've inhabited this planet, that area of the world has just lived differently. We've been a country for 250 years. They've got, you know, a, a, a millennium on us of right. doing this. Right. Uh, right. Living this way, right. and it, it's not the way we do things, and so they're one. They're just naturally better at it. Two, they're immune <laughs> to it. Uh, and three, I, I think it's just it boils down to, you know, <laughs> they don't conduct themselves with a grand desired end state the way we do. Um, and even yeah. even though we never had a grand desired end state for uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, we knew it was going to like we 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 weren't just going to do this in perpetuity. Like at some point we knew we had to make a decision where you, you were getting diminishing returns and the results weren't worth it. So, you know, again, you I, said I, it. I, I don't you said it. Yeah. Mark, you just lined it out. That's exactly right. You, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I, what I work today. At that's exactly what I was thinking. And the pushback I got from the inside the, the senior tank, they call it the tank was Thank you, Colonel. I see, and you know, you're not, you know, you you haven't commanded a lot of infantry brigades and battalions and all that kind of stuff. And we appreciate your input, but our mission right now is to figure out how to go hurt somebody and hurt them. Back. Well, again, but right, yes, sir. I, there's, I said there's I agree. nobody <laughs> who does what we do tactically better than what we do. Right. That's not right. the issue. That's right. never been the issue. Like, right. and it's funny, you know, we sit here. Uh, and, and we look at this thing in, in this war in Ukraine with Russia, and I've told people repeatedly. Um, you know, and this is, I'm torn and I don't want to turn this into a political conversation, but I just, my own personal feelings, I'm torn about how much more we should be supporting Ukraine in this whole thing. I said, because since the dawn of Russia, 
their entire military strategy has been walk into enemy bullets until they run out of them. That's their military strategy. It has been since they've been a country, and they're one of two countries on this earth that can literally win a war of attrition. One, they have the people. Two, their leadership does not care how many people die, period. We don't operate in that world. Right. You know, we, right. we lost some 3,000 people on 9-11. We lost another three or 4,000 people in total KIA in the war on terror between Iraq and Afghanistan. And we had had enough. We'd had enough. Right. Like, Russia will do this for years, for right. years yeah, right. and right. years. And it's just right. like, you know, uh, tactically, they're not out. They're not after a de- decisive victory. That's what we were after 9-11. Right. But that's what we're always after. That's why right. we train the way we do right. and fight the way we do, because right. we, we believe in shock and awe. We believe in tactical decisive victories. That ain't the case for a lot of other countries in this world. They're not about well, that world. Exactly right. And it was that term itself that, that I that I dared raise that really got me the biggest ass chewing. Once I said that <laughs> term inside the tank, I did say <laughs> we're not going to shock it our way out of this. That I, I I started taking the hits, and it was okay. I mean, I I, I had support in there. The J five general I was able uh, and others uh, you know were on my side. But I was just letting them know that we're in a much longer, bigger war than you think. Yes. And I brought up, I also brought up the term Iran. And, you know, again, like you say, we, that's a whole nother cast. That's a beer tall when I come meet you and we have a sit down. Line. No, I, I did. I said that our focus, I, I understand what happened on 9-11. It's ugly. We want to get those bastards. I want to be first in the door. I want to be first on the ground. But there's a much bigger fight out there and, and, and that, that we're going to face. And they didn't want to hear it at the time. No, no the emotion nobody wouldn't did. allow no, it. No, listen, and, and, and why in retrospect, you know, 90% of everybody in Congress voted pro-Iraq because nobody wanted to hear anything at the time. They go to come and kick ass and, and we'll deal with the rest of it. We'll sort right. it all out later. But right. again, you're not going to kill an ideology. The right. same way no one's killed American patriotism, as much as right. we try from the inside out, different conversation, um, right. as much as no one's killed them, it's the same right. reason why you're not going to uh, kill terrorism. Right. And I ran into this headlong once. So I did that. Uh, we got through 9-11. We also we killed a lot of trees, made a lot of, made a lot of projects. As you all know, the course took us to Afghanistan first, and then we started going down the road to Iraq. Road to Iraq, by that time, I was in the vice president's office, Cheney's office. And they were leading the charge when taking out Saddam Hussein. They weren't leading the charge to war, per se, but they were definitely leading the charge to take out Saddam for whatever the reasons were. And I got caught up in that, not, not in a good way. But um, uh, one of your other guests, Jaime Martinez, was yep. on. And Jaime and I were both in the office at the same time together. And both of us asked to go to war. Jaime to a combat unit. I, as a Middle East fail, said, hey, this is where I need to be there. I don't know what I'll do, but I need to be there. And in the whole run up to that, I was proffering the same thing. I said, you... I can see you want to take out Saddam. I said, but who's going to deal with Iraq? And there was a lot of pushback. This is another story, but nobody wanted to hear it. They just wanted to get rid of Saddam. And my whole purpose, which is what I was trained to do in school to do, they didn't send me to grad school and all these years downrange, um, was was to offer different opinions. That's why I was brought in. I was the only operator on the staff. Jaime was in the front office. I was actually in the vice president's office saying, hey, policy-wise, if I were you, I would do this. Um, and there was myself. Uh, another colonel and an SF guy that did counterterror. And we were offering different views. All we're doing is offer a different view. That's not disloyal, as you know, as you know right? No, I mean, it's a, no, good right? leaders yeah. want those people in the room. Yeah, offering different view. You brought me as an operator. I'm telling you right now, if I was on the ground, I had X, Y, Z, I'd do Z, not X. But I get X, but I would, I would, I would lean towards Z with the money. Anyway, so I got a chance to go downrange. And, and once we started uh, – dealing with Iraqis face to face. And it could have been anywhere. It could have been Columbia. Any, once you deal face to face with someone, which I now teach the lieutenants and the NCOs going down range, 
that you're really in a negotiation. The minute that the, the ramp goes down, whether it's a CH-47, a C-130, whatever it is, the minute that ramp goes down, you're in a negotiation. And this is what we like. We didn't understand. We were trying to proffer on them a system that they'd never seen before in their life. And we're out by ourselves. I, I ran all over Iraq when I first toured by myself with a small group of people in civilian clothes without any military whatsoever. And my biggest threat besides almost getting killed once or twice by inadvertent uh, mean or mad Iraqis was, of course, U.S. forces. Friendly fire was my biggest danger there because nobody could in uniform could understand why somebody not in uniform was running around the country by themselves. Uh, or I was with an Iraqi uh, local person and something right out of a, uh, what's that movie? Uh, I forgot movie. It happened to me more than once. So, you know, I, that's what we were, that's what, that's what we as fails were offering in those times. Not, not how to beat the bad guys. You guys got that under control, but what it all means, what it all means later. So 9-11 took me there, took me to joint staff, took me to the White House, and it took me to Iraq on my first tour. <clears throat> and like I said, there I was mainly building building institutions or dealing with the Iraqi populace um, and came out of there 10, 15 pounds lighter, a few bunch of days in the hospital in Jordan to get better, and then back to the States. Second tour, second tour at the Shea tour. And there we had, the, I was back in Tel Aviv again, and we went through the 2006 war. So we had this massive dust up in Israel and Lebanon again. And then I went back to Iraq after that for a second tour. And that tour I was on the ground in combat as an advisor to a senior Iraqi ground forces commander. So, I mean, it just doesn't stop. You don't get any, no, there's no yeah. break in anything. Uh, you know, and again, I, I mean, I'm curious about your on the ground experience in combat, yeah. but I'm also the, the question that's burning in my mind right now, because I, I don't have the, the depth of experience that you do. Look, there's always a gap between strategic goals and tactical goals, right? Like, you're, the challenge is to bridge that gap. Sometimes you get them to line up, right? Sometimes you, you're fortunate enough where everything works out, and, and right. it's few and far between, but it, but it does happen. Uh, right. right. Um, you know, and uh, in the same respect, you know, more often than not, they don't. So, you know, while you're in these rooms with all these think tanks, and boy, it makes me nauseous because group thinking t- t- takes over the military like you wouldn't believe – um, beyond that, again, another different conversation. Yep. I- I'm curious, how much were you charged with bridging that gap? And when you went on the ground in combat and you have this in the back of your head, these strategic things that don't align, right. um, you know, how do you reconcile that? You know, that's a, I have to tell you, Mark, I know exactly right. You, right. We don't want to, you know, dovetail dove octopus, octopus arm ourselves to, to, to the, you know, but that's exactly the that's exactly the dilemma I faced the latter ten years in the military. Uh, I'm facing it right now with terror search too, as well. Um, no, it's that's exactly right. You can you'll be sitting right in there. You got there, you know. You got the notebook on the knee. You're listening to the commander or the counterpart, you know, in his language, express his his feelings, and it's very obvious by this time the disconnect, the apparent disconnect A to Z. Uh, uh, and, and I will tell you, it's its own study. Like you said, and it's not just groupthink. It's, it's, uh, an unwillingness to offer the truth. It's an unwillingness to say something different. It's an unwillingness to maybe get it. If you don't know, you say, well, if I don't know, why don't I just be quiet? Well, nobody knows in that goddamn room. I mean, when you're in the middle of a wreck <laughs> in the heyday of the fight, nobody in that room knows. That's the whole purpose of the circular conversation. Nobody knows. So, Folks, I will be honest with you. We, I, I, I see great bravado at the tactical level. Amazing heroism. Amazing stories. That's, I love the books. I love the movies. I love what you do. But 
uh, punch reaching a certain level, folks start to turn a little bit into it. I call it the tactical warrior strategic wimp syndrome. Um, folks just don't express the, you know, the, the, the intense point or feeling inside at, at upper levels like they do when we're out in the battlefield together or in training and in the dirt and the mud. They don't. I don't, I don't know why. Uh, uh, I wasn't afraid to, but I also couldn't do it all the time either. Or else I shoot myself right out of, out of that picture. Um, but you know, I, I spent a lot of time at, at very senior levels advising and, and recommending or offering that if you go down a, you get B, I hear that you want C, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to get B or whatever B they won't be, they get C. Right. I, that's, that's a human issue. We could talk about another time. Um, and I watched that whole thing in Iraq go crazy. Not from the beginning. Nobody knew. Look, we were all big believers. We were big believers. The first guys who went in Afghanistan, we were big believers in Iraq. We were selling the, you know, the democratic pill. We were selling your life is going to get better pill. And, you know, it hurts. It hurts now X years later to watch how it's all turned out, not just for the guys killed, uh, but it hurts just for the fact that the incredible amount of energy and stuff that we watched people put into and, and zero. We get tactical results with the HVT kill, duh. Of course. You know, but you don't get it the other, other otherwise. You know, it's and I, I've said this, this told this little vignette on the on the show several times, but I remember sitting in Iraq during my first deployment, and you know, uh, I I had worked and stood up the ISAF brigade um, in Iraq. It was one of my you know my first experience there, and I remember I'm working through building this support battalion for the ISAF brigade and teaching. These Iraqis right. had to fight and do everything else. And, you know, it's a, it's a daily grind. And, you know, I'm, I'm a mid-level captain and I'm working with an Iraqi colonel and this, that, and the other every day. And it's a, I remember remarking to a major uh, who we were just sitting there, you know, shooting the shit one day. And, and I said, you know, I, I was just befuddled. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is never going to – like, doesn't anybody realize this idea is never going to work? Like, and you can just – I could just remember just saying they don't want it like we want it. Like, they right. don't want it bad enough, you know? Right. We for work sure. our asses off of this. We want it because we want to get the hell out of here, right? Like, you, we've had enough. You know, it's right. 2005. We've been at war for two years in Iraq and, and four years in Afghanistan. We know, you know, we got to do this to get the hell out. They don't want it like we do. You know, I was like, w- w- why are we even wasting our time? And the major looked at me and just said, small victories, Mark. You just got to take the small victories where you can get them, and that's it. And, and that's the only thing that keeps you going, right? Uh, that and staying alive, you know? Uh, but... You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was able to have in, in that moment a little bit of that, that, you know, strategic tactical gap recognition and you just shake it off and you get back in there the next day and just work your ass off and, and, and you know, uh, try to do your very best. Uh, but, you know, in that moment, um, as young as I was, I was I was able to see that, you know, there is there is a certain, you know, amount of this that amounts to nothing. Yeah, um, I'll tell you, uh, this this is the great dilemma. This is one of the things that's interesting uh, about my breadth of experience, nom to wreck. Um, it's like I told you, we half our basic training didn't graduate. The other half didn't know where they were. Other couldn't speak English. Didn't matter. Now fast forward to, to, to where we are today with, with the intelligence level and the education and the drive of where we're with today. I love this generation of, of soldiers and, you know, soldiers and whatever the gender in uniform today. It's phenomenal. It's so cool to be with them in this, in the work I do now, but the big difference is, is they want it to be bigger. They want to see how it works. They want to know where it goes. And like you were saying, our day, okay, do what you're told, move out. Small victories, maybe. I'm not a big fan of that term. But but when you have the intellectual level and, and the understanding of the folks of, of the force today, like we do, which is not in my early day, that group wants to see the bigger picture. They want to know where it goes. 
I, I was talking one day out loud in class before Bragg a couple months ago saying, hey, you should really look at, uh, uh, well, actually last year because Afghanistan was still, still up. I said, look at it. Look at, look, look at some of the key points of Afghanistan. One of the SF team leaders stood up and said, I don't want to, and I'm instructing my guys not to. I'm like, why not? He goes, why would I? <laughs> right. Why would I 15 years later want to know why we haven't gotten there? <laughs> I don't want to know that. And I, he got me. I have to tell you, you know, not agreeing or disagreeing with the response. I, I, it got me. I, I looked at the ambassador next to me and the station chief across from me and said, wow, holy, look at the, look at the, look at the level this guy's thinking, right? Someone else can argue the point, but I was like, wow, he just didn't want to even go there because he had his job to do and that's what he wanted to do. And he wanted to get his guys home safely, but he did a big piece of him wanted to see where it all went, what it all meant. Even the NOM guys tell us that the guy NOM guys today are crippled from that forever. They're crippled by what happens uh, and whatnot. So, so yeah. I would also tell you, go ahead, buddy. No, I just, I mean. Yeah, this it, is a whole track. It's, it's a fascinating it's, track that few people express. It's frustrating um, because on one hand, we shouldn't miss strategic goals as often as we do with how tactically proficient we are, right? Like the two don't okay. add up. Um, it, it's kind of right. like, you know, as a football analogy, it's kind of like, you know, leading the league in yardage and continually, you know, moving the ball down the field and yet never right. scoring enough points to win a football game. You know, like right. it, it, it right. doesn't add up. There's, there's a, right. th- there's something going hmm. wrong. And, you know, listen, the good part and the bad part about our country, right? You know, we, we rotate leaders every four or eight years, whatever it is. And the, the you, you are pr- promoting some pretty, dramatic shifts in ideology when you change the leadership and you're constantly chasing your tail as a good friend of mine mike jason who was a former guest on this show once said we didn't fight a 20-year war in afghanistan we fought 21-year wars in afghanistan because every time a new unit would come in and a new leadership would come in we'd slightly change the focus and and so you're never really on the same path all the way and that's that's part of the reason why this stuff happens um you know, and, and outside of the political spin of everything that goes on, which, you know, as I've gotten later in my career, you find more and more nauseating um, because as you move up through the ranks and, you know, you see things at, at an 06 level now and, you're, and you're, you're starting to get into that strategic purview uh, and you realize how decisions are made. You know, when you're a lieutenant and a captain, you don't really give her it. Like, you just keep your battalion commander off your ass, make sure your troops are taken care of, they like you, uh, and your paycheck clears, which, you know, it does. Um you know, life is pretty easy. Uh, but when you get to a, a higher level and, and you are much higher as an 06 than I'll ever be. Uh, but that said, you know, you just start to realize how the cookie crumbles and um, how tied your hands really are at certain points. Yeah. And these are all existential philosophical things that, you know, at, at a certain level, many of our audience who are PFCs or NCOs are like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, I, I get it. Um, but because yeah, I have somebody I, here who has, can have the conversation, I'm just curious. And I, I say, you, when, go when ahead. We, I went to the War College out of Iraq, right? So the, the War College told us, National War College in, here at Fort McNair. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, they, told, they called us the angry class. Here's, here's these guys calling us the angry class. Get this. So we were the largest group, post-deployment, post-combat deployment group coming to the school since Vietnam. So on, at the end of Vietnam, folks coming in and out doing their yearly war college stick or coming from all sorts of government, but no one had come from all these pre-combat, you know, combat tours into the school first time. 
2004 on uh, NDU, right? Mm -hmm. So they called us the angry class. Why? Because they were proffering very much what the system proffers, right? Offers school, do this, do that. And everyone in the room, not everyone, that's not fair. Many of the students, myself included, in the auditorium are like, what, what world are you talking about? What world are you talking about? That wasn't the bad part. The bad part was, okay, that, that said, the difference is felt. Once we started offering uh, insights and things to be looked at and how, how we might go forward, given the war is still on, we're still fighting in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was no place to take it. Nobody, nobody was up for listening. Nobody was up for adjusting. To wit, we put together a book. A bunch of us got together a book. It was sponsored by the college. It was going to be written. First from the fight, it was called. Folks were going to tell their tales, the combat tales, or the pre-war run-up tales, the combat tales, the air combat tales, you know, all the services, and then the post-conflict tales. So you can put this all together in one neat book. It was called First from the Fight. They didn't go through with it. They let it drop off. The, the, the college didn't go through with it. But we don't have to get too far into that. Um, you're right. It's, it's very tricky. I will tell you, I, I think your point is, and you're, and you're spot on, it's very tricky at the street strategic level. Um, I, I can't say enough on that. And I, I was, my second tour in Iraq was senior advising the Iraqis for the fight against Baghdad. Sadr started up in Basra, as yep. you know, yeah. the fight came to Baghdad. Yep. It was the U.S. forces that really carried the fight in Basra. The British re refused to leave the FOB. Then it came up to Baghdad. I was, I was, uh, I was negotiating. I was an insurgent negotiator. General Petraeus and Ambassador Crocker had a very small cell that was actually talking to guys killing us. Well, the guys running the guys killing us, because as you know, this, we all know the story of the awakening, right? Where the Sunni decided that, all right, we're losing this battle. We're going to pony up with the Americans for X amount of time. And we know today it's only X amount of time. So the Sunni come to our side. We start giving them yellow, you know, yellow bands and some weapons and some money. And of course, a lot of them come as over 100,000 join the cause. We call that the awakening. Lots of stories about that. We all know it. But we were the level above. We were charged with, okay, we see what's happening tactically. How do we turn this monster of a movement into something strategically directional for the country and to get us out of Iraq? I was that. I was one of two faces that were doing that. Um, so I'm meeting with these guys, you know, these guys that are killing us, literally. Both the tactical guys and the guys paying them. I know it's there's no school for it. There's no school for it. Again, another podcast. And what I, what I, what I, the sense I gained out of that uh, very much is they did not have an understanding of us and their non-understanding of us was leading them to keep killing us at random at large. And, and I didn't, I didn't quite know what to do with that. As I, as I learned it, I gained it because they didn't understand the words America can't do. I would tell them, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. And the guy would mostly guys would look at me and say, hey, dude, you're an American. Don't tell us what you can't do. If you keep doing that, we're going to keep fighting you. Okay, well, that's, how do you translate that into something? I mean, I haven't figured that out today, although I still bump into it in this career. Um, and it was out of that combat tour that I, that I said, that's, I got that to, that was my 30-year point. And I said, okay, I think I've, I think I've done, my, done my country right, been a downrange enough. E even the times in Israel and the West Bank had a lot of hazardous duty time to them. Um, 2006 war was the most intense shelling I've ever seen. Only thing more would be Ukraine, uh, Iraq. We got a lot of rockets. We got a lot of mortar. You know, it wasn't fun. It was it was close, but the northern border of Israel, we had you know 300 millimeters coming in, 240 millimeters coming in. That me and my team had to only me and my team were allowed up there, uh, up up through that. So I figured at 2009, that's enough. Good to go. 30 plus. Wow. 
Um, still trying to find the NCOs that were with me when I was enlisted. Haven't had much success yet, but I want to find them and say, hey, <laughs> turned out okay. You know, um, I, I got to ask you, I'm just curious. Uh, what, in your opinion... Because I'm sure in those rooms, you're sitting there with people who are still in uniform, right? You know, flag officers and everything. And, oh, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. the guys who, who are advising the civilians. Um, you know, and you're probably the low man on the totem pole just being a lowly 06. You, you, little, <laughs> you little puke you. Uh, but it, what happens to folks who still wear a uniform but work in that environment so long that they seem to lose their sense of what really happens at the ground level that helps facilitate and create that gap or, or expand it and not close it? Because it would seem to me, like, I feel like you and I think alike in the sense, just from talking to you, like, I'd be the center in the room being, you realize, like, when you do this on the ground, this is going to be the, like, I understand what you're getting at here, but you're not looking at the second and third order of effects. And I'd be sitting there screaming that, and people would look, at, and I'd be looking at these guys like, aren't you like a infantry ranger, like airborne? Like, don't you, like, haven't you been doing this? Haven't you, don't you know dudes who lost their lives doing this kind of thing? And like, you know, you're now going to send people to do the same thing that you just, why, why, where's, where, what happens to the disconnect? Where does it go? I'm, I'm not sure. I think that's a great discussion all by itself. The only thing I will say about well, my takeaway, I, I hate to put it in bumper sticker terms, but I did find that the tactical level, the warriors are all there. Great Americans. Oh my God. But something on the way up, something as they grow older and higher, I call it the strategic wimp syndrome. Um, and they're not. These are the brightest of the bright. I mean, it's so fascinating just to talk and sit with these guys one on one or when they're having a meal, you know, with things that live. But but uh, inside the room of rooms, I guess you would call these things the room of rooms and all the, the pachyderms are in there. I honestly don't know exactly what transpires in their own thinking. Their own thoughts. <laughs> I, it's weird. Yeah, my uneducated assessment is is pretty simple and i would just say this they lose their balls because they're not the guy in charge anymore right like it's one of those things where you know if you do that personality spectrum thing the idj whatever the hell it is i don't know you yeah, know no, yeah, myers brick yeah, yeah. but I, 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 yeah. I never subscribed to that crap anyway but it's just yeah. one of those things where it's like look you know certain people get to that level because they drive they drive they drive they drive and yet they follow the rules and the people in front of them because they and here's, here's the one flaw in my career, and I openly admit this. I didn't play the game well, right? If you said something stupid to me, I let you know it was stupid. And I did it when it, when it happened. Like, I, I didn't really have the cooth to pull you aside and go, yeah, you might, you know, you know, it's just like, no, hey, hey, that's dumb. Don't do that. Um, and, you know, I, I believe that it's certainly, in retrospect now, you know, has prevented me from doing certain things in my career but in the same respect, it's like those guys get in those rooms and they cowtail to what they believe and what they know for the sake of, I guess, what they believe the greater good, um, <clears throat> or at least just to do what the guy in charge says and no one wants to speak up. And, and that, to me, is disingenuous leadership. Can be, can be. I think you can also, uh, on, a, on, a, on a letter of credit to the folks that get to that level and have to be involved with these kind of decisions, uh, uh, first of all, one, they're not easy. Two, Perhaps there is a way to make it happen uh, uh, in a different way. And, sure. and you got right. I mean, that, that's when I'm sitting there thinking and watching kind of sometimes feeling like you do getting a little hyper and, you know, it's hard to come off the street like I did, even though I became an 06 and not keep 
sort of like what you're expressing. I've always got that, that edge of me. I, my wife knows yeah. that she's listen, I'm a New York kid. I'm a New York Italian guy. who doesn't right. keep his mouth shut. Right. So it wasn't going to change. He just, she, she goes, don't yell first, talk first and yell like, okay. I mean, I, it, it, it takes time, but there's also possibly very fairly a sense that, uh, yeah, in that room at this time, I'm not getting anywhere. It does me no good to, to, to say, Hey, check out the stuff on my chest. I'm warning you, this is a, a bad way to go. It might be that there, you know, and if they can get a moment of control, a moment of some of the control, then they can run. And that, and that, as you, as, a, as it's proven, that's a risk because the more, the longer you wait things, the longer you don't control them. This has happened both with bad guys and good guys alike, whether it be politically, whether it be, you know, we've, I've watched the Israelis foster Hamas. We fostered guys in Iraq, which are now killing Iraqis or uh, politically. We've watched people say, well, just tolerate him. And then oops, now he's in turn. So there's a risk to that. But sometimes when I'm sitting in that in those rooms and I and I have been privy to very senior high level stuff, uh, I said to myself, wow, I feel like you do. But I say, you know what, I'm just hoping and thinking that if they can get this at the right time and place, they can make it go the way we I would think they'd want to go. That's all I would offer. Yeah, that's all. That's all we can offer. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm yeah. on one hand, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. fascinated by you know, the whole thing, the relationships and, and, you know, how it all comes to pass. On the other hand, I just take a very pragmatic, simplistic point of view that if you're going to be yeah. a damn leader, then speak up and be a leader because that's what, what my soldiers yeah. would want me to do. You yeah. know, if and something's out of line, my soldiers want me to tell them if something's out of line, that, hey, you're putting Joe in a bad spot. And, and I just, you know, I've always fallen back on that simple premise, right? Like I, I, those guys who stand behind me in formation, I care more about them than whatever is next for me. And that's always something that good, better, or different got me in trouble. Otherwise, you know, I, I've always just uh, looked at it under that vein. That's how I put my head on the pillow feeling like I made the right decision. Yeah. You and know? you're not alone. I mean, you're not alone on that. I mean, it was made like that. But uh, taking care of you and taking care of you guys, you know, that's always sometimes a critical, can be a critical juncture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's and a divergence there. Be. Usually there's a divergence because sometimes taking care of you means – not taking care of them. And, and yeah. I, I just, I, I never wanted to be in that position. I will offer though, that when I, when I am with the younger generation now, a lot in the, in the consulting and teaching and mentoring I do ish, I do make it a point to get folks to strategic levels, to get them up to, to, to know that there is that useful sphere. There are a certain percentage that absolutely want no part of it. I'm looking for Abu Abu. Fine. Go get them or whatever the place in the world they will be, whatever the, the name fits. But there are an overwhelmingly large number of those who would really like to know how this all works out. And yeah, well, that's, yeah, 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 that's pretty cool. Get, get rid of the riddle and wrapped in the enigma, wrapped in the dilemma and everything else and, and untie that thing. Uh, yeah. It's like Chevy I mean, Chase and Christmas Vacation. Little knot here, you know, just go figure this yeah. out. Yeah. So. But it's good to see that at least guys, especially special operations guys, they want to know what it all means. They're in the third or fourth pump. Okay. I've done this one. I got it. I got the tribal leader. I got the shake. Okay. So where, what else can I do while I'm out there? Now, what would be nice if somebody at a, at a position of senior policy would, would take that and say, Oh, you know what? We can get you to do this while we're out there. Rather than saying, no, stay in your lane, call you when we need you, which is legal, by the way. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a legal designation. That's how our system's set up. It's tricky. I would like, we would like to see more of the former, but you know, right now the latter is Roger out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then you want to come home alive, and that's okay, too. Foreign internal defense. Uh, right up there with coin is two words that uh, that sound great and brief well. Boy, did we love them. <laughs> Boy, did we love them. Uh, okay. Anyway, right. okay. Uh, we won't go down that road. 
Let me ask you, in reference to the time when you spent negotiating with bad dudes, uh, yeah. wherever it was, yeah. uh, most difficult part of that, I mean, I know it's hard to ask such a broad question, but... No, it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, two, 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 two answers. It's a good one because I thought of it a lot. First one is being able to take what they say, and you just got to take what they say. I mean, they're not... How, how much can you believe a liar? Well, first off, I'm not so sure of going in, going in and anyone's putting a liar, someone's a liar on the table. <clears throat> okay. Um, um, put it this way. I mean, I'll explain that. Um, <clears throat> lying, lying in the fact that we, we've grown up with, the, you know, for those who did Iraq and Afghanistan, when they say it's not my fault, I didn't say, okay, yeah. Inshallah. Right, right. Right, right. Okay, that, that's one <laughs> side of it. But the other part of it is when, you know, when the guy is truly uh, of of the world he's from and he's grown up with a certain belief and he's being told what to do by his gang or has signed on for whatever reason, uh, it's I don't take it as lying. And, and, and you don't want to as a negotiator because you got to deal with whatever points on the table, which you don't have time as a negotiator to spend a lot of time on the psychology. I mean, that, that's that's movie stuff. You got to really get to the points on the table. So being able to take that one. <clears throat> Number two. <clears throat> you have to have something to offer at the end of the day. It's called a negotiation for this simple point. We don't teach this very well. It should be taught much more, much, many more of our schools. <clears throat> you got to have something to offer. Um, and you don't want to lead too early with it. Too many, of my, too many of my partners and peers would offer something as soon as they sat down. I would, also, I would, I would call it a very much a Western weakness. Offer. And they're doing it right now with Putin. They're doing it right now with Xi and China. You know right. Don't offer anything to see where this thing can even go. So, right. so being able to take the take the hard part to your face, and then lastly, being able to being able to <clears throat> tell him or offer at the table that <clears throat> this is not going to go well, and he replies back for who? <laughs> so you're thinking, hey, you know, I allowed you, we got you to be a 72-hour non-schwack policy so you could come in and negotiate with us and vice versa. 72 hours, game is up. And he looks at you directly and says, okay, for who? After 72 hours, who's going to be the bad end of the stick? That's pretty intense stuff. It's pretty it's pretty intense stuff. I mean, there aren't ready answers. There aren't necessarily like the kind of talking you and I can do over this call. I don't really have answers. And it's very uncomfortable to be able to sit there and go, shit, I don't have an answer. You can't do that. Yeah. When you're in that I mean, position. there's, there's gamesmanship in all of this, right? Like sure, there's, there's, you know, uh, in <clears throat> any negotiation, you don't want to lose leverage. I mean, that's, that's the key to winning a negotiation is leverage. Uh, and, but you got to have it. Well, just that's like you said, <laughs> right. On your podcast, you just said it, right. You got to have the leverage. Uh, yeah. And it's, you know what that is. It's you not a position I'm often years? familiar with having leverage. Trust me. So, um, <laughs> You know, and anybody who's ever been married uh, knows that leverage is never on your side. It was a fascinating for me to, thing to do in my career, and it's uh, someday I'll get it down on paper. Yeah, it's hard to hard to describe that whole time period of, of dealing with those guys. I met so a lot of guys in Orange. I was on their flights, you know, the the Conair flights. I was traveling outside of Iraq to meet people in hotels and apartments. You know, um, I'm still not sure I've put it all together to be honest with you. I I, I mean, th- there's still a part of me that almost seems that's, that feels so Hollywood like. You know, that like, oh, we had this high-level negotiation with a guy who's actively sending people to kill American troops, and we're going to sit down over a cup of coffee and try to talk this thing out. Like, you know, it almost seems like not real. 
Yeah, but it, yeah, that it was, and that I didn't feel like. But I did learn that if uh, the business approach was was the ultimate approach that you had to have in a way, and you know we're not taught that, we're not schooled in that. So everything at the end of the day is business with that level of, of that for the most part. Look, the true believers like the Ayatollahs mm-hmm. and all those, like for here, for instance, the toughest negotiation I ever had to do was not with a killer. It was not with a stone cold killer. It was with the guys who were sending them to do their to do it. The information guys, the 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 religious guys. I I, had, I sat down with a couple of those. That was hard. Did you find that they were smarter than you expected? Very, very. In their own world, in their own way. Okay, in their own world, in their own way. And you got to give a lot of credit to that. Not Harvard smart. Not coming right. out here to to fix right. uh, the. the they IT didn't go to National computer. Defense University or anything. No. But what they're smarter in is their culture and how they operate in it. And we were on, on wrong turf there. The ability to move words and to mix messages and to and to come to to come to a coherent thought was unbelievable. It was unbelievable to me. I don't know if you can answer this, but I'll ask it anyway because I'm curious. Uh, when you talk about leverage, like, did you ever get into a conversation with somebody where you had had the leverage or the ability to turn around? If you don't do X, I'm going to send an entire fucking brigade of soldiers through your area to destroy everything that you know possible. Like, is that like, cause that feels like a really badass move to say in a negotiation twice. twice. You did? That's nice. Twice. See that's that. <laughs> okay. But twice actually once for by me, once by a brigade commander, I saw it. Um, I, and the brigade commander did it in Sodder city. Ah. What, happened was, what happened was we built these councils. We built these councils, local councils, right? Uh, that was my first trick because I came out of the White House and I couldn't get to a combat unit like Jamie did, like Jaime did. Um, we built these and it went south. Sodder took the council f- building from us. He took it away. So I, I went in there to say what happened, what's the neg- and to do the negotiation to get it back. And we brought in a, uh, on this two days, I had a brigade commander in there in uniform on purpose sitting next to me. So I'm the guy in that little jacket with the shirt. Appear, appearances matter. Yeah. Right. And, it, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Here's the power, firepower. And he got very uh, perturbed at the at the pace and the, 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 the tone of negotiations that screwed this. And he went. The, battalion, the brigade he, commander got perturbed. Yeah. He okay, went patent. Right. He went patent on it. <laughs> and literally, I mean, it was right out of, right out of the movie. And the, the, the takeaway that I got, the most fascinating thing I got was not one eyeball not one wink batted on the other side of the table. What did, what, what did he say, Jessica? Do you remember his words, what he said? Of, of that, you know, I, I'm I'm a United States Brigade Commander. I have the most powerful armored formations in the world. Literally, he went, just so as you just said, he said, well, I'm, a, I'm a very powerful force at my disposal. You have taken this building from us. We want it back. We've been very nice. We're trying to negotiate with you. We built the building. We paid for it. It's for the benefit of all the people, Sada City, not just you, the Molas. <clears throat> and, and and so many times, if you know if these negotiations don't go right, we're going to take it back anyway. So, ha! Um, it was unscripted. I was trying to tab him underneath the table. Hey, don't don't go that route. <clears throat> and but but the right, but the most important thing, the most fascinating thing that happened was none of those guys blinked. Not one so wait, them. when you see that none of them blink, huh. do, do, are you like shit? He just overplayed our hand. Number one, number one, yeah, and number two is what do you say next? Technically, yeah. if you put that on the table, you should basically get up and walk out of the room. Yeah. He could get up and walk out of the room. I couldn't. That was a dilemma. Now, for me, I can't get up and leave the room because that was unscripted. If that was scripted. We knew it was coming. We both get up, walk out. Okay. Cut. 
right? It wasn't scripted. So, oh, okay. Now what, where am I in this position? Yeah. He just I'm left, sent by, he just I'm left sent you by, with your, you know, what hanging out. Right. I'm sent by the big guy at the palace to do this. Not you. You were there to back me up anyway. And the second time was, is I did myself also not that way, the Hollywood way, I would say <clears throat> I did put it on the table and said, and, and this is the classic Vietnam scenario. I said, you know, you can't beat us. You know, and uh, we, we, anytime we won, I told you what we would do to include you personally and all of your family and, you know, all of your forces. And uh, the response coming back across the table is, yes, we know this. We know this already. We know this. We take this into our calculus, but we also know you're not staying. We also know you're Americans. Meaning if you're Americans, we know you don't operate this way. You can't kill us all because you won't. We know you don't do that. Yeah, God. Right. And there are responses those really leave you kind of quiet for a minute and you can't stay too quiet for too long. Cause then you lose the powers. But this is, this is fascinating. Actually, you're taking me to things that I did, you know, I didn't, you know, haven't been thought of in a while. Exactly. Uh, right. I, I mean, you know, we could say that to Russia tomorrow. Would it matter? I don't know. No, it wouldn't. And, and again, right. you know, I have this conversation <laughs> with people all the time. I said, listen, Russia's not interested in Russia and China, are not interested in standing, go to toe, going toe to toe with us. It's not in their best interest. It's in no one's best interest. And they realize that. They, they know do. they can win so many other ways that they don't have to do that. Right. They don't want to do it because, for the most part, they lose. Right. At the end of the it day, is. it only ends in one option to annihilate, and that's using nuclear. And no one's really interested in going there. For as much as you know, we all stick our you-know-what's out about that, like, right. oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. At the end of the day, <clears throat> and that's, that's the, a leverage point. It, it is a, a leverage point, point. but it, it's <laughs> as you said, we, it's weird how – our greatest value and our greatest strength in trying to provide some level of humanity to war has put us at our biggest disadvantage on a routine basis because we are that's and I think you just encapsulated it for me and I just it just sort of hit me the light went on yeah. that is why our strategic gap always exists yeah. because we don't go to the level of using full on tactical force to to achieve a strategic objective objective because at some point we will pull back and go, this is too much. And we believe in a law of proportionality, right? We don't fire a mortar round at an anthill. We don't, we don't expend that kind of ammunition on one dude. We, we never have, we never will. So It's funny. It's funny. I found myself, because it's exactly right, I found myself funny. I thought when I came on board on deck, I was very much the, as I told you, in the big rooms, it's a strategic guy in the block. You can't kill him, can't kill him to success. The Israelis have proven it. And I know we're enamored with the Israelis, but they finally get it. They finally come to the conclusion it's the politics, stupid. Uh, but now I actually found myself as a latter part of the tour, especially my last tour, I was getting very angry and very mean. And I started to believe that you could, you could bomb. You, you, I, I wanted to kill more, I, or correction. Um, I wanted to see more killed. I mean, I myself was changing because I was getting so frustrated with the, the, the effort, the, the, the purpose of our effort and the where it was getting us to. So I, the, the strategic negotiator was saying, we got to swack more of these guys. Yeah. I said, how did I get to this position? You know, so from, from that, but it's, it's tricky. It was, I, and it also told me it was time to go too. I, that I had yeah, to yeah, I get, get that. that sooner or later. I'm, I'm going to ask you a loaded question here. Um, Are you having yet? <laughs> well played. See, there's your negotiation tactics coming in. There you, go. you just right. got me off my footing. Um, <laughs> Did we win in Iraq and Afghanistan? No, not at all. All right. I mean, I, I heard it was really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you. I don't ta- know. So tactically, Afghans we won, right? Tactically, we won. 
I go back to Iraq a lot and it's hard. I mean, it's hard. I, I, and I have very, 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 uh, I don't call them friends, but close people on all sides of spectrum. I can even talk to insurgents when I go back there now, uh, or what was once them. Um, it's hard. It's, uh, they look at you like what happened, what happened, what happened? Why couldn't you do better? No matter what you say you did or would have done, they, they just don't get it. They don't get it. We're still America though, but they don't get it. It's hard. I don't think we, I don't think we, now the word win to me would mean that we value, we push forward a national interest in a certain direction that we wanted it to go. I don't see how you make that connection. That's how I evaluate that question. Nope, that that is fair. Again, you know, you're not going to convince me there was a tactical engagement that we lost, right? At worst, a push, but you're not going to convince me that, that we lost any tactical engagement Mm -hmm. despite casualties and and things of that nature. But, you know, again, to your point, and, and boy, that, I mean, that's, that's so disheartening. It, like, like I would love to go back to Iraq at some point. Um, I think it would be cathartic for me. I, th- I think there would be a certain amount of um, – Happy to take you. Come on. We should get a group together. We should go. I, I Listen, you know, to stand in this spot where, you know, we were ambushed uh, and, and live through that again. You know, I've talked to Vietnam vets who have gone back and, and um, you know – uh, other folks who have been able to to go have that experience. On one hand, I don't want to go, but on the other hand, I would love to go um, and just remember it uh, and be there for a minute again. Yeah. Um, Point to families too, which is kind of what I'm doing now. I think families would benefit very much if there's something like that could happen. Well, and yeah, the I think you can see with it right now. Right, you what can see what I saw and, and what right. I lived through, and you know, and point out uh, things of that nature. Um, but. You know, to hear from them, why couldn't you do better, is probably the most disappointing thing I think anybody could have said to America. Like, honestly, like, I mean, picture this this transaction going down. It's the President of the United States, whichever one it is, and the President of Iraq or the Parliament, whatever government structure they have right now in a public forum, looking at the United States and just going, why couldn't you do why why couldn't you do better than what you did? Look at where yeah. we are. Look what you, what you left here for us. You, this is the best you could do. Like, is there a bigger insult we could receive in a public forum? And it's still being asked. It, they would love to see us come in, and we still, unfortunately, have those in the government who think they can do it. They can aid their way out of this, or they can get it right. I'm like, I think as an American, you should always think that way. But I haven't seen the connect the dots connected. But go for it. Go for it. Wow. Which is why now, with what I've gotten into, is the, is a, is actually a great healer and a great. Well, uh, I wanted to transition to that, so let's talk okay. about Terra. Um, yeah, Terra Search MIA, um, looking for for uh, you know missing and fallen that are that are still out yeah. there. So I mean, h- how yeah. did you? What well, led you to this? We want the community involved. Is the thing I'll put up front, right? If we got skin in the game, and I want to get the community involved. Uh, once you retire, you know, you kind of say, what do I do in the next world? So I was doing some of the typical consulting, Beltway Bannock consulting. Um, okay, pays well, but it's, you know, the oomph is not there all the time. I mean, I love working with the generation. I love working with the young gangs coming in. I, I'm driven by that like crazy still. Uh, but again, having been through what we've been through, it's a little hard to see how it all connects. And sometimes it gets, you know, a little frustrating. So I said, I have to find something else. I can really wake up in the morning and I just want to get up in the morning and go for it. Uh, uh, the the age of my bones aside, so my uh, my wife uh, was stationed in uh, Southeast Asia, and I became a spouse. That's the first thing you learn when you retire is you want to become a spousal element. Uh, and she asked me, "Do I want to go?" I'm like, 
yeah, I guess. I don't know what I'll do out there, but I'll go. And of course, when I got out there, there wasn't a lot to do. Um, I couldn't come back to the States and do the, the normal consulting. And I did some writing and I did some uh, computer consulting. Uh, but then I said, you know what? I'm going to travel. Oh, my God, look where I am. And I'm a military vet. I'm going to do military historical travel. So I started. And one of the places I ended up was the island of Tarawa. In uh, the Gilbert Chains, the Gilberts were British sailors. And the Gilbert Chains, Republic of Basio, Tarawa. Tarawa is a very, unfortunately, famous site of a very bad invasion day for the Marines and the Army on a different island in World War II. Previous to that, it would be one of the first Marine Raider operations was out in that area, the Marsoc, current Marsoc. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, heck yeah, I'm going to do me some touring. Bangkok is incredible because it's one hour from any one of those places, maybe three from Fiji. I was on Tarawa. I bumped into a, a young lady. She gave me the battlefield tour. I got stuck out there anyway because the airlines ran out of gas. So we were going to be there for three or four days. Uh, and I did the tour. And while I was doing the tour, she said, do you want to meet a, a someone that's digging up American soldiers? I'm like, what do you mean digging up American soldiers? I'm like, you're serious? She goes, yes. Yeah, cool. Show me. Uh, she told me she was Kiwi. She wasn't. Anyway, she introduced me to her as an American. And she had just found the first two Marines, full skeletons, laid out in her room on this long table. Wow. And I said, what the hell? Are you kidding me? She says, yeah. I said, that guy was over six foot and that guy was this tall and literally almost every bone there is, which is incredibly rare. So I said, who are you? She goes, well, you were staying here. So have dinner with me and staying in the same small hotel. And she belonged to a private NGO uh, at the time, History Flight. Who, um, and I said, how does someone get in this business? Because check this out, Mark. I had went to JPAC at the time called JPAC across the street from the embassy in Bangkok. I had all my badges and retired colonel. I walked into their headquarters, saw all the pictures on the wall of all their ops in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. I said, hey, I want to volunteer. I make rice. I clean tires. I can, uh, I can, I'm a mean gate guard. I'll stand there all day long, tell people yes, no. I can, uh, I can, uh, I can run your op, whatever it is. I got experience. He said, nah, we don't take volunteers. I'm like, yeah, 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 shut up. I'm, I'm a veteran. He said, no, Department of Defense does not allow volunteers. Come out, come out. like, what? The DOD doesn't allow. I thought we were an all-volunteer <laughs> army. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And this was an Air Force fail. So we hit it off right away. I said, I don't know. What. He goes, I'm not sure. I apologize. I don't want to tell you, but I can't formally, if you kind of happen to be out there, maybe. I said, well, who are all these people lined up with buckets? She goes, well, those are villagers, and we kind of pay them a stipend, and they're brought in by a local like a tribal guy. Okay. So I was serious. I got so mad at us. And so while I'm on Tara, I see this young gal. She goes, well, you can volunteer with us. We're looking for people. I said, okay, cool. Next thing you know, I'm moving buckets, just dirt. I'm cleaning things. I'm, I'm doing recovery missions in Europe and back out on Tara, and you name it. But I'm kind of a senior guy, so I, I tell the owner, I say, hey, I can – Let's take this bigger. Let's make this thing. Let's take this to the big guys. So we saw McCain's office and a bunch of other congressional offices, but it was a tricky place to work. The DOD was, is the DOD. Um, so I went with them for four or five years. And then uh, once I came back to the States, I, I started working again and, you know, COVID hit. And I, and someone called me over COVID and said, Hey, why don't you do your own gig, man? You don't need to work for anybody else. You can run a gig, do it. I was like, I don't want to run my own gig. I don't want the hassle. They said, do it. I said, screw it. I'm doing it. And I formed Terror, and I, I built it on two things. First off, you most certainly can volunteer with us, and we want the veteran community. I don't like going without medics, UXO, and, and a MacGyver type. I want a good E6, E7 that can build things that people have never dreamt, right? Because we go in some really tough places. Sure. Secondly, 
uh, uh, we're going to beef up the numbers. We're going to professionalize this. The archaeological world is niche. It's kind of tricky. Uh, we have all of our operational acumen. We got all of our you know, institutional acumen. So we can put together a great system, not a bureaucratic system, but a system that can really take this to the next level. So I founded it on those two principles. And really what got my gourd, Mark, is, you know, all I did was as a young soldier in Vietnam, is hear about this, the cries in the night. I'm talking in Korea, my day was fighting, crying, assaults, incidents everywhere. And a lot of it, guys in the middle of the night would scream out someone's name and he wasn't there and coming home. Fast forward to Iraq. Thank God the numbers we have from Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, are formally five or six on the DOD website. So thousands to six. And I saw throughout my career that people weren't really getting the old black flag there. They weren't the thing we never forget was kind of dying in the dust. And it is. So I said, well, the hell with that. We're not, I'm not going to let that happen. That's not going to happen on my watch while I can still lift things. And my body's pretty beat up. Right. So that was the philosophy I put it together with. I went and reached out to some of the guys I work with from this other uh, uh, outfit and others that I met. They were wholly behind it. They're excited. Um, I started out as for-profit because it was simple. And now we're, now we're almost nonprofit, finished the nonprofit stuff. Uh, and we've been out several times already, Sicily twice. So I've got Germany on deck next year. And I'm trying to get Southeast Asia, given my, given my initial heritage as, as an enlisted guy. Um, but it's, been, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky business. DOD is still tricky, I'll be honest with you. Trying to get into the VA, tricky. Um, but we we're, want to build a coalition of all the, of any uh, veteran outfit out there that would Win-win. Anybody that participates with us is win-win. How do you not win by having this on your website or participating with us and going down range? Someone has got to do this because they're going to get left. I can tell you right now, the numbers are too high. They're going to disappear in the dust. And I, I find that wholly unfair. And I find it wholly unprofessional that this nation will continue to commit people to war and then leave them there. Yeah. No way. No way. Yeah, it's it's it's, yeah. it's insane for all the the ideals right. we just talked about that hamper us right. in combat and everything else. The one right. ideal that we've always stood by is never leave a man behind. Um, right. You know, we 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 have sort of let fall by the wayside um, right. from you know many many other engagements from from decades ago. Right. Um, look, right. I, I it's amazing. You know, when I was reading going through the website again, terrorsearchmia.com. Uh, and by the way, Terra is, is an acronym, correct? I mean, it, 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 it does stand for... Terra stands for Earth, Land, Ground, but right. then we've built it around the principles that you see in our logo. Training, right. expertise, right. research, right. recovery, and analysis. So right. uh, there's right. Terra. But yeah, yeah. I, I just, I had never heard of anybody doing like anything like this. That's right. what kind of drew me. I'm like, like, there's an organization out here who's doing something that the government is supposed to do. Uh, now. Right. That the military right. should be doing, still to a certain extent. Um, and, and there are people doing it on their own, on their own time and their own dime. And I think that's just, it's incredibly noble and, and, and incredibly honorable. Thank you. Yeah, we get, we, we, we get the numbers up, the participants up, we can get steady state. It'll be a very, we'll be able to get a year, multiple missions a year is what we need is what we want to get to. Not just ones and twosies, ones and twosies. Yeah. I actually think the active duty military shouldn't be in it so much because you know how goddamn busy we are. You know how much they already ask of our military hurricanes and floods and humanitarian and you know the guys love it and when i bump into an uh, uh what it's called an organic mission when the active duty crowd's out there we replaced one last year in sicily we actually came on the heels of them it was incredible hard mud bath people were getting hurt every day uh that they have enough to do i know they love it but they have enough to do if you got drivers like us let us handle it are you kidding a veteran we'll do it i'll take care of it i love waking up in the morning i love being out there 
and I'm wrapped like a football player. You should see me. I got this belt on. I got this waist belt. I got the knee braces. I got elbow braces. Who cares? I don't care. Look what I'm doing. I, I can't hurt any more than the guy I'm looking for. Well, that's so, certainly a appropriate right. way to put it. Um, right. You know. Let's step it up. Help. You know, we want to step this up. Well, again, uh, it should come out when we're out there sometime. I'll let you know and come uh, on out, bring the team out and come on out and see what PJ, I'd, I'd love, I, I'd, I'd absolutely love to take part, yeah. uh, going Good forward. Point. I mean, it, look, uh, I, I'll say this much, uh, you, you, you far exceeded every high expectation I had for our, for our chat today. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. It's, uh, it's, it, you know, there is so much more literally this could have been like, you know, an eight hour podcast because I have 8 billion questions, um, and people who listen to the show, fans of the show, know that I ask a lot of questions. So it's kind of my job, but nonetheless, I, like I, I have a lot more. Um, but just, you know, uh, your entire military experience, as you mentioned, from Vietnam all the way up and through and the things that you were a part of and, and everywhere else. But, you know, what, what I see more than anything um, is is a, a guy who loves service and a guy who, who wants to give back. And the passion and the purity with which you've operated throughout your career and what you're doing now, I think, is is the ultimate draw for me. You know, I mean, it just, it really is a certain uh, humility to, to, to the way you've conducted yourself, but uh, that humility comes with the highest level of professionalism and an execution that uh, not many have matched throughout their careers. You know, uh, I'm drawn to, to good leadership. Always have been, always will be. And I can, I, it's, it's, it's the American Idol principles, what I call it. You know, three seconds into American Idol, you can tell if they can sing. Three seconds into a conversation with somebody, I can tell if they can lead. And that's, you know, I'm drawn to it, and I go right there, and, and, and I think you've encapsulated all of it. I, I genuinely do. Well, we thank you for having us, and we hope to stay in touch. Absolutely. We can, yeah, keep this thing going, build, help with the coalition. This is in all of our interests. And, yeah, we'll help we'll follow up with you anytime and answer any questions that you guys got. 100%. And, and, and your whole team, let's let's get them on. I want to share all their stories. I think it's uh, – okay, I think they're all individually uh, unique, but, you know, Tara's story in and of itself will uh, – will live on. So thank you so much for your time. Certainly appreciate it. PJ Dermer. Thanks for being part of the hazard. All right, Mark. Thank you, brother. Guys be good. Be safe. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.